One of the key things with the Crusades, I think there's two decisive Norman contributions. The first is the very idea that you could take a group of Western Europeans, march them into the complete unknown, and they might stand any chance of success whatsoever, arguably is heavily influenced by previous Norman success. An excerpt from today's guest who's written an expert account on the profound impact the Normans had on European history. British academic and author Levi Roach is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. I've just released a brand new documentary. You can watch online for free on Tubi, the streaming service from Fox. The show is called Weather and Warfare, Millennia to Modern Time. Weather and Warfare dramatically retraces the meteorological forces during battlefield engagements that doomed or saved civilizations. In 1588, more than half of the Spanish Armada, on its way around northern Britain, was destroyed by storms in retreat back to Spain. Napoleon's attack on Russia was stopped cold by winter weather, as was Hitler's siege of Leningrad. Just click on the link in this episode's description to watch on the web or download the app or watch on Roku for free. I hope you check it out. Welcome back. I'd like to mention to click that follow button on this podcast. It helps the algorithm do its magic so more military history lovers can find us. And thank you very much. Today's guest studied at Trinity College and is a former fellow at St. John's College, also in Cambridge. He's now senior lecturer at the University of Exeter. His book is called Empires of the Normans, Conquerors of Europe. And author Levi Roach joins us now. Levi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I don't have to admit, I don't know much about the Normans, but I'm probably descended from the Normans <laughs> because half my family is from England. But for our American audience, uh, could you enlighten us on who the Normans were? Yes. So the term Norman and indeed Normandy, comes from the medieval term Northman. And that was just a general term, originally means man from the north, but it was a general term used for the Vikings. Not the only term, but it was a fairly generic term to mean a Viking. And this comes from the fact that Normandy is created as a Viking colony in northern France. So a set of Viking raiders, Vikings start attacking France, British Isles in, the, um, in earnest in the ninth century. Um, and various groups at times settle in these these regions. And the most successful of all of these settlements, in fact, was Normandy, created in the early 10th century, around kind of 910. Uh, a particularly successful leader called Rollo and his men settle there. And so they become the Vikings settled in France. And initially, writers will refer to them indeed as the Northmen of the Seine, the River Seine, to distinguish them from the various other Vikings they might encounter. But eventually the name just sticks and it becomes a term uniquely for the inhabitants of the Duchy of Normandy. And so they keep this term that originally means Viking and then comes to now mean a distinctive group settled in what becomes Normandy. I see. Are they different from the Gauls? Yes, very much so. So these are a group of, uh, Scandinavian, of Scandinavian origin, in terms of this, who have been uh, attacking mainland Europe, um, in the 9th and 10th centuries uh, in particular. And so they, they, they're starting their careers often as pirates. The, uh, there are references also to the early Normans as pirates by their neighbours as well and as the Duke of the Pirates because that's how they uh, initially made their fame and fortune. 
Um, but most of those people who eventually identify as Normans, as it were, or at least very many of them, wouldn't necessarily have been pure Viking stock. They also intermarry. And so they end up creating a kind of unique uh, political entity there where there is a significant influence from this Scandinavian elite, particularly in the early years, but which is actually Francophone, it's French speaking. Why was the defeat of the Anglo-Saxons so momentous and what immediate impact did it have on England? So I think it was extremely momentous from kind of two different perspectives there. On the one hand, it was hugely momentous for England and the British Isles in the sense that it meant that these became part of a political entity with its origins in continental Europe. Uh, and a Francophone ruling elite was suddenly brought into England. Uh, and then that elite found its way fairly rapidly thereafter, also into Wales, into Scotland, and eventually into Ireland. So it meant suddenly much more continental and in particular French influence on these sorts of regions. But it also had a huge impact on the reverse, on France and on the Normans, because it massively widens their horizons, particularly of the Dukes of Normandy who previously have been very, very big players within the French kingdom. One of, you know, three, four, five most influential people below the king and sometimes alongside the king. But that's still three, four, five, six different people kind of of, of that kind of level of power and influence. And suddenly this catapults them into the trans-European elite and makes the Dukes of Normandy on par with the kings of Germany, with kings of places like Sicily, of Spanish kingdoms, of Poland, of places like that. So it really transforms them and transforms their ambitions and influences the decision-making of later Norman uh, uh, adventurers as well, partly decisions to do things like try to conquer large parts of Ireland are almost certainly made because there's been such notable success previously. So there's those two elements that make it quite so significant. I think the other thing that is also worth bearing in mind that's important here is that it could be done in the way it happens at all. So England, when William the Conqueror conquers it, is a big prize. That's one of the reasons why he wants it. And it's a big prize because it's a very centralized kingdom by European standards, capable of generating significant tax revenues. And what this all means, and it's not something we can take for granted in the Middle Ages, is it's a kingdom where you can knock out the ruler and replace him completely. Or, the, or indeed the ruling elite, as William the Conqueror does, he almost places the entire aristocracy, but keep on ruling the existing systems, like you could with the modern government. That, you know, you can replace a head of state in most states and keep running it on the same model. But that's not something in a pre-modern society that you can simply assume, that there, there's large parts of Europe where power is so decentralised, you'd constantly be fighting the next chap and then the next chap and then the next chap. But it's because England is, in fact, uh, already very compact, William's able to come over, win, a decisive battle, and then pretty rapidly thereafter establish himself as the ruler of England. And the Norman Empire spread out, obviously, as you alluded to, uh, into Europe. And are there things that we still have with us today which were created during that time of the Norman uh, expansion? Yes. So we have, I think, a number of things that survived today. Some of them are more historical relics, but if you do live in, in France, in, in England, and anywhere in the British Isles, you'll have castles nearby you that are um, of Norman creation or created by their descendants. You'll almost certainly have churches created by them or on their models. One of the things that happens very soon after the Normans conquer England is a huge boom of church building. So within 50 years of the Norman conquest, every single cathedral and major church in England 
is rebuilt or relocated or both and sometimes more than once. So you've got all of those kinds of legacies, but you also have various cultural legacies until the late Middle Ages. The ruling elite in English, the uh, aristocracy, was Francophone. They spoke French as their first language. They would also speak English, but they'd speak that to speak to the common folk. They, they wouldn't speak it amongst themselves. It was ungenteel. And famously, this has its legacy in the fact that we in English, for example, use French terms to refer to uh, an animal when we eat it, um, and English terms when it's in the field. So you eat beef, but you raise a cow. Oh. And that's beef is simply from the French term for cow. But we, we've come to distinguish, and it's because they're fine when the people who were, you know, uh, uh, actually tending to the cows were English speakers and it was French speakers who were then eating. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, author Brian Walter will be here to talk about his book, Blue Water War, Maritime Struggle in the Mediterranean and the Middle East, 1940 to 1945. The British are not in a good position uh, because they've gone from a situation where they were part of a coalition confronting a single adversary to now uh, they're essentially fighting by themselves with no European allies, and they're engaged against two different uh, powerful adversaries, one in northwest Europe and the Atlantic, and the other one in the Mediterranean, which means the British are going to have to fight a two-front war, assuming they want to, want to continue this contest. Another program you won't want to miss. I don't know my Crusades history that well, but did they become involved with the Crusades, or was that... Was that... Yes, absolutely. And and one of the things that in terms of trying to draw this panorama of Norman uh, activity, I want to do was to highlight some of those elements that otherwise get ignored, particularly beyond the British Isles. And one of the key things with the Crusades, I think there's two decisive Norman contributions. The first is the very idea that you could take a group of Western Europeans, march them into the complete unknown, and they might stand any chance of success whatsoever, arguably is heavily influenced. Um, uh, by previous Norman success. And some recent work on this indeed has shown that a large number of those who sign up for the First Crusade are related either by blood or marriage to people who are either involved in the Norman conquest of England or involved in Norman conquests in southern Italy. Um, and this is slightly as an aside here, but just as Williams conquer England, at the same time the Normans are establishing what becomes the Kingdom of Sicily in southern Italy. So they're also a big power there who come in externally and been highly successful in hostile territory. And so when a group of people agree to go into the complete unknown, it's actually not quite as unknown as it might have been. And they've recently seen friends and relatives succeed, win accolades, win great wealth by doing precisely that. So earlier Norman conquests, in a sense, create the model for the Crusaders. And indeed, the Normans themselves have been very keen to gain religious support for their conquests in England and in southern Italy. They worked very closely with the popes and sought, pope, sought papal support. So again, that element is bigger in the Crusades, but it was already there in kind of a, a seed form, if you will, in earlier Norman conquests. So that's one yeah. kind of element, if you will, that you know is in the DNA of the Crusades is, is earlier Norman activity. And the other then is simply that significant numbers of Normans do go on the Crusade in terms of the, the manpower that goes there. So the son of William the Conqueror, Robert Curthouse is one of the leading crusaders. So is his son-in-law. Um, so are so is Bohemond of Toronto, the son of the major conqueror of southern Italy, of a different Norman. So you also have very, very significant Norman direct involvement as crusaders. I know uh, 
the organization of the Knights Templar began in France. Is that true? Was that part of uh, uh, that French contingent of Normans? So French and the term French or Franks, Latin French. term Frankie, it's almost impossible to distinguish the two in, in this period, becomes the banner under which the Crusaders travel. Because one of the things most Crusaders share in common, though not absolutely all, is that they are Francophone and French is the kind of language they use amongst themselves. So yes, the Templars are being created under that wider influence. It's not, you know, a specifically Norman creation, but it's coming out of those kinds of trends. Um, and it's created to protect the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and the Kingdom of Jerusalem itself sees not insignificant Norman settlement. Who are uh, some of the standout figure, Norman figures that we would, uh, would have heard their names today? So the obvious one is William the Conqueror, who's the, perhaps the most famous Norman of all, conquers England, um, kind of uh, defeats all before him, or so it seems, defeats in battle multiple times, the King of France before he ever comes to conquer England. So he'd be your most famous one in, in the Anglophone world. Arguably, just as important in terms of wider history is this chap called Robert Guiscard, who derives the Norman conquests of Southern Italy and Sicily and creates the Kingdom of Sicily, which becomes one of Europe's leading powers in the 12th and 13th centuries um, and has a son who goes off and is one of the most important first crusaders uh, and so on um, and i say that he's at least as important because i think in terms of the later political geography of europe his impact is at least as great if not greater because he conquers parts of italy that are previously um, greek right i.e what we now call orthodox and regions that were islamic sicily and these are areas that could easily have therefore tread a very different path. So mm -hmm. southeastern Italy around Apulia could easily be, culturally speaking, much more part of Greece, could have become part of later on the Ottoman Empire or things like that. Sicily could easily have remained part of the North African world. So Sicily is geographically closer to North Africa than it is to Rome, if you draw lines on a map. And so there's no reason why these should automatically become part of what uh, we often call the Latin West in this period, i.e. the area of influence of the Catholic Church, which before the Reformation is kind of creating the bounds of what we traditionally consider Europe. So I think in those kinds of respects, Robert Guiscard is probably the name that most of your listeners won't have heard of unless they're real medieval history buffs, but mm -hmm. perhaps really ought to have. The subtitle of your book is Conquerors of Europe. And were they engaged in many large-scale battles to conquer territory? Yes. So conquest in this period is not always achieved. It should perhaps be emphasized by battles or by decisive battles. That's often the exception to the rule. Uh, most warfare was more day-to-day, -day, more strategic, lots of sieges uh, and kind of wars, uh, more attritional warfare. But certainly there are some real showcase battles. So again, the most famous one, going back to William the Conqueror, is the Battle of Hastings, which is where they win England. It's not quite as easy as that. The next kind of five years, William has to see off a series of major rebellions, a number of which come within a hair's breadth of success. But still, it is it is the decisive battle that had he lost it, he wouldn't have conquered England at all, and it, it makes his fame and fortune. He also wins some other set-piece battles earlier on in his career against uh, the King of France, who he defeats twice in battle, very famously. Likewise, um, in southern Italy, we have some very famous conquests, the most famous one being the Battle of Civitate, where there's a decisive showdown uh, between the Normans, who are the newcomers in the south, 
and a kind of coalition of those who oppose them and are frustrated by them, who include the German emperors, who previously considered Southern Italy to be their sphere of influence, the Pope. So the Pope was uh, was on the opposite side. So. He, yes. So the Pope initially encourages Norman conquest in Southern Italy because the Normans are, at the time, a bunch of relatively unknown uh, freebooters from northern France uh, and therefore are no threat to him and a potential benefit and particularly they are, as the Pope is, uh, uh, Latin Rite, i.e. as we now call them Catholics. So they're, they're very much religiously uh, on, on the same side. But the problem for the Pope soon become, once the Normans really succeed, they then become the leading power in the South. And the main thing the Popes want in the Middle Ages, because they don't have very large territories or armies of their own, is what they don't want is powerful neighbors. They want weak neighbors. So when the Normans are weakening their other neighbors, they're really, really happy. But when the Normans then become really big players of their own, they become rather less happy. And the kind of story, once the Normans become well-established, is the Popes tend to ally either with the Normans against the German emperors or vice versa. But they're never really completely happy with either. They kind of have to choose one side or the other. And they swap back and forth as best they can to ensure that neither becomes too dominant and uh, can overpower the papacy itself. And the papacy had much more power back then as well. Yes, or perhaps I would say much greater authority. Okay. In practice, power on the ground of the Pope's was limited. Uh, the Stalin's alleged dictum of how many battalions has the Pope was still true in the Middle Ages. They didn't have a very large army, but very significant soft power, ability to influence and control. And certainly that does help them very much. And it, we are certainly talking about a society where respect for the Pope is extremely high. Now, your focus has been on medieval history. Are you working on a follow-up to this book? So I'm in various discussions about possible follow-ups. So I I think I certainly will be doing something else. I'm a medieval, so I'll be doing something else medieval either way, but something else probably for popular audience medieval. Um, But it's not entirely settled what it might be. When you say popular audience, would that be um, a broader story, or what? what yeah, what, what I mean is a trade book like like oh, this one, rather than uh, uh, being a professional academic teaching at a university. I also produce books that nobody reads. Um, <laughs> you know that. Yeah, well, a few of my students might on a good day read, but but uh, I, I also enjoy communicating to a wider audience. So it's always trying to balance balance those twin demands of trying to kind of you know make sure I'm helping push on some of the frontiers of knowledge, as it were. But a lot of that is not very digestible to a general audience. And then also making sure every now and then I kind of pause to communicate what the significance of some of these things is to, to, to people who might be interested in care. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to keep pushing forward, that's for sure. The book is called Empire of the Normans, Conquerors of Europe. Levi, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining me. Next time, author Brian Walter will be here to talk about his book, Blue Water War, Maritime Struggle in the Mediterranean and the Middle East, 1940 to 1945. The British are not in a good position uh, because they've gone from a situation where they were part of a coalition confronting a single adversary to now uh, they're essentially fighting by themselves with no European allies and they're engaged against two different uh, powerful adversaries, one in Northwest Europe and the Atlantic, and the other one in the Mediterranean, which means the British are going to have to fight a two-front war, assuming they want to, want to continue this contest. Another program you won't want to miss.
And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spirit YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.